Uh, open up the community news and information. On the inside there, you will see our text, where we're going to be looking at God's covenant with Israel. It says Exodus 18 through 20. We will just be doing Exodus 20, basically. Um, and so to serve as our uh, sermon text, um, we're going to read the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. Last week, we looked at Exodus 12 through 15. We saw the tenth and final plague that God poured out on Israel, or, uh, on Egypt, the death of the firstborn. We saw the, the lamb there. The blood was put on the doorpost, the parting of the Red Sea. We covered all of that beautiful redemption of God where we saw that God delivers his people from death, from slavery, and for worship. And now we've come to this place where God is now going to give the people um, a way of being in the world in response to his salvation of them. And so let's stand, actually, for the reading of God's word from Revelation 20. Wow, no. Exodus 20. Revelation is the seminar next month. Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on, in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Feel free to have a seat. And if you do, um, recall the Ten Commandments are kind of a big deal. They've been featured in films, they've been featured in music, they used to be back in days past in uh, judicial settings. You could see them at almost all courthouses posted around. They were a big deal. They're not, you can still find them today, but not so much. They're certainly a, a, a big deal in the church community um, throughout the ages. They've been vitally important to church and families and individuals. The Ten Commandments are found in every Protestant and Catholic catechism and confession. And not just briefly. For example, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that's the, 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 the catechism is a, a question and answer way of teaching the next generation and teaching truth. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is the catechism that our family of churches is committed to. Out of the 107 questions and answers... 42 are the Ten Commandments. 
or take the Heidelberg Catechism. That's one of my favorites um, from the Reformation period. My wife and I are actually journeying through the Heidelberg Catechism this year. Each Lord's Day, we're reading a set of question and answers. And of those 52 Lord's Day collections, 11 are the Ten Commandments or associated with the Ten Or even more recently, the New City Catechism, which we used as our um, statement of faith this morning, is one-fifth the Ten Commandments. But they're not just important to the church. They're not just um, commonplace in in church families and in church communities. I stumbled across, um, this would have been years ago, but in 2014, you may have heard of this, the, the atheists knew Ten Commandments. Even outside the church, there's something about rock-solid things that you, you cling to. In 2014, there were 2,800 submissions. You can find this. It was first published on CNN and then made popular by the Washington Post. 2,800 submissions from 18 countries and uh, 27 of the U.S. states. They put together a judge team. And they put together their own new, and they called them the non-Ten Commandments, the non-commandments. But they're still imperatives, so I don't know what you do with other commands. Be open-minded and willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Every person has the right to control their body. God's not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life, followed right after by the so-called golden rule of Jesus. There is no one right way to live. This is the unbelieving world around us, uh, scrapping, trying, clinging to some sort of rock-solid foundation, or to use C.S. Lewis's metaphor, though the commands of God are like spending a long time in mud and wading through deep waters and then finally arriving at solid ground. If you've ever done that, if you've ever been backpacking or hiking and spent time in rain and you're just... You know, trudging along mud, and every step you take, there's no solid foundation. You take a step, and your foot goes down into mud. Once you finally get on dry ground, rock-solid ground, you're like, oh, thank you. This is true. That wasn't. This is real. That isn't. This is what we are called to do and be. That is the commands of God. That is the Ten Commandments. Again, these are summarized in the, the two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourself. Then God gives us these, these Ten Commandments. There's something special about them. Uh, uh, Scottish Presbyterian minister Sinclair Ferguson says these are the ones that God writes with his fingers. There's something unique about these ten. And then there's 600 and some more to follow. But this is a good summation of the heart of God, of the law of God. And so if I had to summarize it into one thing this morning, I want you to get, it's pretty basic, it's pretty easy, and that is this. The commands of God are good. The commands of God are good. They are good themselves. They came from a good God, and they are for our good. We were actually made for this. Now, there's all kinds of um, things I I hope to to straighten out with our understanding of the commands or the law of God, but they are good, and I want us to see that from the outset. So let's begin to work through the Ten Commandments, and hopefully uh, uh, we'll get some wisdom here. I'm going to stay pretty high for the first half of this, and then we're going to zoom in on the first four commands. So sorry, five through ten, they don't get any attention this morning. But first, let's look at verses 1 and 2 where we're going to see this, the prologue to the commandments. And this is very important. Look at verse 1. I want us to see two things. God spoke all these words saying, 
Pause. That's the first thing I want you to see. God spoke all these words. We commonly call them the Ten Commandments. Um, older theologians and throughout the, the years, these were just called the Ten Words from this. That's what they're called. These are the words, the Ten Words of God. It's appropriate to call them the commandments or commands because they are imperative. They're in the imperative tense. Do this, don't do that. But they are the Ten Words, and you'll notice that God speaks them. From the very beginning of the Ten Words, we're being told who the source is. God. These are not just, you know, made up, wishy-washy, good, great thoughts for us. These are the very words of God. His will. He is the source, the fountain of these things. Yes, the purpose of the commands are important. And yes, the content is important. We're going to spend time on that. But those are, that's secondary to the truth that God himself is the source of these words. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing, and where we're going to spend some time, is verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what I want you to see here is that the commands of God, the law of God, comes after he's already graciously redeemed and saved his people. I think you're getting what I'm picking up laying down. No, I think you're like the, the commands, God says, do this and don't do that, but it's not in order for him to save them. They've already been saved. They've already been made his people. Did you catch it? I'm the Lord. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's going to go on to say, you're my people. I've made you my people through the exodus and the 10 plagues and bringing you through the parting of the Red Sea. I've saved you. You're already mine. Then he gives them the Ten Commandments. Now, here's how we're to be and live in this world in response to my gracious salvation. What I'm getting at here is that the Ten Commandments, the the law, any of God's imperatives, are not to be obeyed by us in order to become one of God's people. We don't obey, we don't do good and shun evil in order to be counted amongst the people of God. God has already redeemed and saved them, and they are to respond appropriately through obedience. And I'm hitting on this because there's a large, in in general evangelical thinking, uh, the danger here is that we end up cutting off three quarters of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament. But we're spending a lot of time studying. Like, that's works-based. Be good, don't do, and do this. And then Jesus, (laughs) thankfully, he came along, and now it's all by grace, and some, even in some circles, like the imperatives and, and obedience is not even talked about. It's all just, we're saved by grace. What I want us to see is that's how it always was. God delivers and saves his people by his goodness and by his grace and brings them out from danger and out from death and says, now this is a way I want you to be in the world in response to my grace. We, I don't want to get that backwards. There's a number of of uses here, like when we think about, okay, I think I'm tracking so far. I'll come back to that in a second. The Ten Commandments, okay, the law of God, but why? Why do we need this? Theologians and people way smarter than myself speak of uh, the three uses of the law. That's a fancy way of saying there's at least three really important things the law of God does. 
The first is simply to reveal God's will. That's what I was emphasizing with verse 1. God spoke these words. This is God's will for us. The second, and this is maybe more popular in evangelical worlds, and that is to show us how messed up we are, to reveal our sin. One of the purposes of the law is to say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, do this, and don't do that, to reveal you need help because you just did that and didn't do that and did that and sinned and sinned and sinned. It, it, it reveals our brokenness, reveals our sin, and points us to the need for a Savior. But thirdly, the law is used to restrain evil in us, but also in society as, at large, to keep us from doing things. I had a restraining event yesterday. My new thing is to... Uh, to rock it on a treadmill, so I was crushing it at the YMCA, walking uphill, grade 10, 3.0 miles per hour if you want, it's, it's, it's great, it's actually pretty hard, but I was listening to that, I was getting my podcast in, and then I, I, I had some time spending uh, with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, listening to The Hobbit on audiobook, but I was distracted, FS1, man, on TV, Fox Sports 1, I think is what it stands for, they were doing um, drag racing, but not just drag racing, they were just showing the, the bad things. Over and over again, these cars going hundreds of miles, just blowing up fire and guys going crooked and slamming into a wall and spinning and tumbling over, and then they just step out completely fine. And then the, the whole point was like, man, they did it. And then they get back in the car again to do it again. The scariest one was the drag motorcycles. You can't steer them. You just lean. And so over and over again, these guys are, nope, that's not going to work. And he goes into a wall, flips over. One time his leg was just dangling. And I'm trying to watch and, you know, Bilbo Baggins, and I'm like just distracted. <laughs> but one thing for sure is that I will not be drag racing. I am restrained by watching that and being like, I don't know why they're being celebrated. He almost died, and, and she almost died, and they're just getting back in the car. I, I don't need to do that. Thank you for showing me that. I'm going to stay away. It's not in a, a perfect one-to-one correlation because I'm not saying drag racing is a violation of God's law. Um, but when we look at the, the law, the, the ten words, there's a restraining aspect. I, I don't want to go there. This is not for my good. This is dangerous. Um, help me, Lord. Those are the three, three uses of the law, to re- restrain evil, reveal our sin, and to show us God's will. And the Old Testament people of God loved this. They loved the ten words. They loved the law of God. It's another reason why I think like if we get caught in that evangelical, like the general evangelically trap of thinking the Old Testament is so hard, so burdensome, there's no grace there, it's just all works. New Testament, grace, grace. If we get caught there, we're going to really struggle when we get to the Old Testament saints themselves, such as David or the other psalm writers who talk about loving the law of God, meditating on it and dreaming about it in their bed. Oh, I love it. Why? Because it's that rock-solid foundation in a world of walking in mud. It is God's will. It does reveal our brokenness, but it takes us to a mighty God who saves. The law of God is good. If you want to meditate and read some more, I would just, this is easy to remember, Psalm 19 and 119. Psalm 19 and 119 are two great psalms that can hold your hand and maybe help you lift your eyes to the beauty of God's commands. But again, what I'm getting at here is we've got to get the order right. God saves, redeems, delivers, any other words that you wanted to use around that topic. He gets them first, makes them his people, then gives them a way of being in the world. Let me show you that, not only from Exodus 20, verse 2, but also Exodus 19, 
So this is the, the only few brief comments I'll make on 19. It's in your insert. Look at verses 3 and following. Same thing here. The Lord calls to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, in response, if you will obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God saved them, bore them on eagles' wings, brought them to himself. Now they are to obey the covenant. Now they respond with obedience. There's three beautiful pictures there. They're called God's treasured possession. That's just his special treasure, literally. He, has, he owns the whole world, but the people he has chosen and delivered and saved and made him his own are his special treasure. They're a holy nation, simply set apart. That's what holy means, set apart for God, for his purposes. But they are a nation. This is unique here. They are now being established as an official nation. The sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are now officially being made Israel as a nation. But most importantly, and this is the one I wanted us to see, a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. What is a priest? Well, he has direct access to God. Often it serves as a mediator between God and other people. So that's, he, God is saying, collectively, this people has access to me, the creator and redeemer of the world. But not only that, not only access, this gets at their mission. Israel is now to be a light to the nations around them. They are to be a kingdom of priests. That is, they're to be a priestly group that lives in such a way that is attractive to the peoples and the nations around them, and the peoples and nations around them say, I want that, I want what they have. Access to the creator God, salvation, atonement for sin. I want that, I want in on that. The beauty of this is, is that the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' close friends and earliest followers, writes 1 Peter, and in chapter 2, he looks at you and he looks at me, and says the church is this. No other institution, no other people group, the church is the special treasure of God, holy and set apart in a kingdom of priests. It's you, and it's me. This pattern of getting this right, that, that what we could say is the indicative comes first. God saved them, they are his, and then the imperatives. Indicative first, imperative follows. Am I doing that right for the directionally? First, second, from your standpoint. Indicative first, imperative follows. That is the, the pattern of the New Testament letters. Roger and I have hit on this when we're in a New Testament letter. I'll take Ephesians, for example, by the Apostle Paul over and over again in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Literally, the first half is all indicative statements. Who you are in Jesus, redeemed by his blood, purchased by Christ, made his, forgiven, free, and restored, as we say here. You were dead in your sins, now you've been made alive by Jesus. Reconciled to one another, then chapter 3 prays for you, and then and only then does Paul then say, live this way. Amongst yourselves collectively, in the home, husbands and wives, 
parents, between one another, the imperatives of what we are to do follow the indicative statements of who you are. Or if I can nerd out on systematic theology for just one minute, justification and sanctification. Justification is the act of God's grace. It's his free grace where he pardons our sins and makes us righteous because of Jesus' work. Justification speaks of God looking at you and looking at me and saying, that is an obedient son or daughter, righteous. Your verdict and my verdict, if you are in Jesus, because of justification, is not guilty. But, on the other side, sanctification is a work of God, still of his grace, but it's over time, it's us slowly, progressively growing in godliness, growing in Christ-likeness, or what you could say, it's the lifelong journey of becoming what you already are in God's sight. Why did I just tell you all that? Well, not just to give you two long, shun words, but to say that your problem and my problem is getting them backwards or getting them out of order. Because I sometimes base my justification, whether or not God sees me as righteous, whether or not he has forgiven me, based upon how good I'm doing in my godliness. My sanctification. And so I tend to think about my my union with Jesus or my, my standing before the Lord is dependent upon how good I'm doing in the sanctification department. You can see where I'm going with the problem of that. Well, maybe today's a good day for you. You go to church in the morning, you're going to go have a, a, a feast with somebody or enjoy fellowship, maybe enjoy a nap, read your Bible, a good, good day, little sin. I'm doing great. But then tomorrow you wake up and you're short with everyone around you. You snap at your kids. You get in a fight with your wife. You name any of the sins. If your justification is dependent upon how good you're doing, you're on shaky ground. And I am too. But the beauty of it is that's not... That's not how it is. That is not truth. That's what we often do, and that's how we often think. But God declares us righteous. That's not going anywhere. You're united to Jesus by faith. Can't be broken. Can't be undone. You are in him. And now we are to live in response of that through obedience. Uh, I'm going to not do uh, justice to the Ten Commandments. And we're going to move pretty quickly here. But I would just commend one work to you. I spent uh, a couple weeks with it by a a guy in our denomination named Kevin DeYoung. It's a small little green book called The Ten Commandments, published by Crossway. I would encourage you to read that if you want to explore um, these commandments a little bit more. But I want to just quote him, because I'm going to use this quote as a little mantra throughout our remaining moments together, and that is this. Salvation, DeYoung writes, salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. We can streamline it even more. Salvation is not the reward, but the reason for our obedience. So let's keep that in mind as we now just look at a couple of the first commandments briefly. First, in verse 3, the first commandment, no other gods. This is getting at the heart of worshiping the correct God. There's nothing... um, going on here that's controversial if we understand it to be that Yahweh is saying that he's a powerful deity, he's a strong God amongst a bunch of other gods out there, and we hope that he wins. 
but he's just one of a bunch of others. No, no. The beauty of this command is that the Lord is saying that he alone is to be worshipped, and he is to be worshipped as the one and only God. That's controversial. That's weighty. That's exclusive. And that's what Yahweh is saying. It's not unlike the statements of Jesus. I'm thinking of his I am statements where he's claiming to be this God in John's gospel. Jesus is a good teacher. That's not controversial. Hindus and Buddhists can say that. Jesus, he's a wise guide. Well, all right. New age people can say that. Nothing controversial there. Jesus is a prophet even. We can get down with that. Well, Muslims believe that. But Jesus, as the king of the universe, to whom all must bend the knee. No way. No way. Or to use Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's controversial. That's exclusive. And that is Jesus. That is the first commandment. The problem is our hearts. The, pro- the, the temptation of, of Israel in um, the, the original hearing of this, the temptation of the people of God throughout all ages, is your temptation today. And that's to break the first commandment by saying, I want the Lord and blank. I like Yahweh. Give, give me the Lord. Give me Jesus, but and money. Give me Jesus and success, and comfort, and control, and safety, the Lord, and status, people like me, the Lord, and obedient kids, the Lord, and I've got to have a satisfying job, the Lord, and whatever that thing is that you have to have to make you happy, and without it, I'm not complete, that's another God. May not have the name Moloch or Ra or any of the other gods, uh, Baal, but that's no less a God in our lives. You've probably broken the commandment. I have too. What's the beauty? Salvation is not the reward, but the reason for obedience. The second commandment, oh, wow, let's go fast. No images or idols. If the first commandment had to do with worshiping the correct God, the second commandment has to do with worshiping God correctly. Um, you, you saw in the second commandment, which is verses four through six, no idols, no statues of anything in heaven above, earth, or water. God sure sounds like anti-art. No statues for the Lord. No, no, that's not what's going on. Look at verse five. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. The Lord is, is getting at the reality that um, he's not anti art he's not anti-statues, he's not anti-beauty. What he is, anti, is using those images, using those statues for worship, for aids or assistance in worshiping him. Now, the rub, where does it come for us? You may be familiar with this debate. The rub is, can we see images of Jesus? Practically speaking, it means can I read the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones and watch The Chosen and The Passion of Christ or something? Is there a place in the second commandment for imaging the second person of the Trinity? I don't know. 
I go back and forth myself, truly. Our tradition uh, is a little tight on it. There's no, no images of, of Jesus allowed. Um, and truly, if I'm being honest, I go back and forth. Because God seems to have given the world images already. I'm looking at a hundred of them. Um, there's, a, there's a supreme emphasis in the scriptures on uh, Judaism and now Christianity being a word religion, a word spirituality, one where we read or hear the words. But I also really like the Jesus Storybook Bible. <laughs> so I, I go back and forth um, on that good men and women have differed, saying that Jesus has imaged God. He's taken on flesh and image the invisible God, so it's legitimate to use images of Jesus for what we often call, in nerdy circles, pedagogical purposes or missional purposes to unreached people groups. So we're basically saying kids and unreached. Uh, again, good people differ. I just put that before you to, to wrestle with. Um, but the point is that God takes his worship seriously, the worship of himself. Roger, you got the... Uh, the stuff in verses 5 and 6 next week on God being a jealous God and visiting the sins of the fathers on the children. Let's just skip that. Verse 3, uh, commandment 3. I'm going to skip that too. Don't take the names Lord, uh, the, the Lord, the name, the, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Narrowly speaking, we often speak of that uh, and think of that as, as, as uh, cussing, using God or Jesus Christ in the place of a, a cuss word or a frustration word, and narrowly that does include this. That is a violation of the third commandment. It's cringeworthy to me. I usually do pretty good in um, circles with unbelievers or even in art or movies with cuss words, but man, when someone says, oh my God, or using Jesus Christ as a frustration word, man, it's, it's cringy to me. And it frustrates me how many believers speak that way. It's a violation of the third commandment. We should be careful. But more generally, the commandment's not just that. The commandment has to do with much more. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, making a false promise and not following through was profaning the name of the Lord. Getting a, a vision or, or a prophecy or something, it doesn't come true. Being a false prophet was taking the, names, the Lord's name in vain. There are other examples of this. So it means more because the name of God, capital L-O-R-D, is Yahweh. That is who he is. He reveals his nature. He reveals his character and who he is in his name. That's why he takes his name seriously. Brothers and sisters, let's just take his name a little bit more seriously than we have, maybe. But lastly, uh, let me remind us of our mantra, though. Salvation is not the reward, but the reason for obedience. This isn't a, a sermon on just do better. This is seeing the commands of God as good. So lastly, I just want to make a couple comments on the commandment number four. Rest and Sabbath. That is that we are called to enjoy a, a cycle of good work and good rest. Good work and good rest. This is the controversial one, right? Nobody seems to have a problem with having other gods or not killing one another or adultery being bad. When it comes to the, the, ten, the Ten Commandments, it's like nine of them are pretty easily affirmed and, and seem to be clearly reaffirmed in the New Testament. It's like everybody debates on the Sabbath. Can I work on Sunday? Can I go for exercise on Sunday? Up front, I just want to tell you my wonderful plan for your life with this commandment is that you rest one day in seven. And secondly, that you view and value Sunday morning worship and prove it by making it a priority. 
So, um, if you have any other questions, and again, I'll leave a lot on the table with this fourth commandment, I would refer you back to a previous sermon series on the Sabbath that, that Roger and I taught through back in January and February of 2019. We got more positive feedbacks on that sermon series. We worked hard on it, but it did a lot of good for myself. I know for Roger as we were preparing it, but we heard a lot of positive feedback. I would encourage you to refer back to that. But Sabbath simply means cease. Stop. It's the stop day, the cease day. It became synonymous with just the seventh day because in the the Jewish understanding, it was the seventh day, Saturday. Now what happens is Jesus is resurrected and the people of God, many of who were Jews, become Jewish Christians. They, 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 they follow Jesus as the Messiah, the King, and so they keep the Sabbath. It just moves from the last day of the week to the day Jesus was resurrected, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday. And they've kept it pretty serious. It's been pretty important for most Christians throughout the ages that Sunday is a new Christian Sabbath. And there's debate, though. Uh, good men and women, again, have differed on this and how tight you have to hold the day. But I want us to see that I think, at least arguably, this might have been the most important commandment in their mind, at least. Maybe. Not to, not to bring down the other nine commandments, but look at it. It's the most detailed and long. They've actually already heard it. We skipped over Exodus 16. God already told them about the Sabbath back in Exodus 16. It's the only commandment that's come before the commandments. It's used and referred back to more than any of the other commandments used over a hundred times in the Old Testament scriptures. It's the only day other than the Day of Atonement, which is very important, where work was forbidden. And later in Exodus, the early chapters of uh, like 30, uh, the early 30s, there's a ton of commands listed, and, and we get to the end of it, and the Lord says, and above all of these, keep the Sabbath. Above all of these, remember to do your work in six and rest one. So that's what I want us to see, actually, is the, the, the grace and, and the kindness of God to give us one day to rest, to cease from our work and to worship him. It's not a burden. He took one of my days. The blessing is he's given us six to do our stuff. We have one to cease, to rest. Practically speaking, it's easiest probably to be a Sunday. We start corporately worship uh, together, and Sunday's a day that's often off for most of us. Uh, But I do get that there's uh, disagreements on that. It's tough for everyone. But if it's not Sunday where you're stopping, ceasing, one in seven, I would exhort you to have another. One in seven. No work. Rest. Worship. And if by necessity, yeah, if it's not Sunday, then, then make it another day. But even if it is another day where you're finding your soul rest, resting one in seven, this is my second wonderful plan for your life. Do you still value Sunday morning? Is this a priority? We need this. Gathering as the people of God to remind ourselves of the one true story of which we are a part. Sunday's not optional. And this is not just preacher hat on. I got to tell you guys to come because this is what I do and it feels great preaching to a larger room than an empty room. That's not it. I actually just care about you. You were meant to be with God's people and sing God's praises. And the live stream doesn't count. Now I know that there are things that come up. 
sickness happens, um, I am thankful for a live stream of people traveling or whatever. Actually, no, I'm not. If you're traveling, stop and go to church, wherever you are. But sickness happens, life happens, I, I, I get it. But do you make this a priority? Gathering with God's people. To sing the Lord's praises. To cease work one day in seven. It's what you were made for. Let me just have Kevin DeYoung close us in a very challenging manner to my own heart on do we value Sabbath rest and do we specifically value and make a priority of gathering on the Lord's day with God's people. Kevin DeYoung writes, are we teaching our kids that Sunday is the day we go to church or just the day we try to squeeze in church? There are few habits more important to pass on to our children than the rock-solid routine of going to church every Sunday. It will be hard for our children to come to the conclusion that church is important for them if we raise them to think that it's only a third or fourth priority for us. We may say that Jesus is Lord, but end up showing that soccer is the real king. Or baseball. Or vacation after vacation after vacation after vacation where you're always missing at least one, maybe two Sundays. I think I've probably broken this commandment. I've not valued resting one and seven. I've probably undervalued the gathered worship of God. You might have as well. What's the good news for us? Salvation is not the reward for obedience, but the reason. And the Sabbath points us outside of this. We rest one day in seven because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We can rest from striving to earn his forgiveness, his love. We can rest from going, 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 striving, striving, striving to be righteous enough for God. Jesus has already done it. Jesus has already paid the punishment for our sin. His blood was shed, not like the Passover lamb in Egypt where we just had to put it on the door. His blood covers you and me. We're now white as snow, righteous in God's eyes. We can rest because Jesus has worked for us. And that's why we go to the table each week and, and where I'm going to take us now to the communion table where we're going to remember that. We're going to remember the Passover lamb, which is Jesus, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you are in Jesus, you are united to him, one with him. And what is true of Jesus is true of you. And God looks at his son, Jesus Christ, and says, righteous. And guess what? You are too. If by faith you are in Jesus, you, you're seen by God as an obedient son or daughter, even though you aren't, and even though I am not. Because Jesus was for us. Jesus died for all the violations of the four commandments we covered today that you have done. Not counting five, six. Kids, honor mom and dad. You don't do so good. My kids don't do so good. The other commandments here. Jesus has shed his blood for all of our violations of the Ten Commandments. And so in God's eyes, you're looking at a tailor who has perfectly obeyed God. It's good news. Because I haven't. 
and I'm looking at a bunch of people who have obeyed the law of God perfectly because Jesus died and rose again. We're going to the table not only to remember that, that Jesus died and rose for us, but also to get power. We call the table a means of grace, a way that we're energized to obey, filled with with strength and power as we were reminded of the gospel. We can then go and obey. Here at New City, we'll come from the outside of the room. You'll receive your bread or, and red wine or white grape juice and return uh, from the, uh, to your seats on the, uh, the inside aisle. So outside first and come in this way. This table is for you if, if you're in, uh, in Christ. If you've broken a bunch of these commandments and, and, and done pretty terrible, violated all of the examples I gave, good news is I have two, and that's why there are examples in my sermon. Come to the table. The table is not for perfect people, but for honest people who know that they're imperfect but have a perfect Savior. So it's a Christian meal. If you are trusting in Jesus alone for salvation and resting in him as your Sabbath, resting in him for your salvation, then come. Let me pray for us as I do. If I could have some elders and deacons um, go to the tables to serve the elements, that would be great. Let me pray for us. And again, sorry for going a little long. God, you are good. You are are gracious to us. We are violators of the law, Lord. We fall short. We have sinned and we are rebellious. I pray that you would use my feeble attempt to just highlight a couple of the commandments for our good. Lord, as we come to your table, Jesus, I pray that you would uh, give us grace and power as we feast with you by faith on bread and wine. Empower us, energize us, and remind us of the gospel afresh this morning. And I pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.